0: Hello, my readers. It's Nora McNerney here with another episode of The Terrible Reading Club. I like to think of this as great books for terrible times or about terrible times, maybe. and one of the most terrible things that I can imagine and I have a particularly terrible imagination, a terribly good imagination, maybe I should say. truly, I can just think of anything awful at any time is... Something happening to my brain Something to my brain. My husband Aaron, and stop me if you've heard this one before, he died of brain cancer. And as far as luck goes, he was basically the unluckiest lucky man I've ever met or the luckiest unlucky man I've ever met. His tumor was in a part of his brain that didn't affect his personality or his speech or his memory, I guess, basically maybe just a blank spot, a part of his brain he didn't need. But I know a lot of people who weren't that lucky, whose brain tumors just kept snipping away at who they were until they weren't themselves At all. And it's obviously not just brain cancer that does this, it's dementia or a brain injury. Or, and this is one of those things like quicksand that I thought in my childhood was much more common than it is amnesia. Who gets amnesia? I thought truly not only that I should be on the lookout at all times for quicksand, for sinkholes, for some reason, lava. I lived in Minnesota, a very geologically sound place, if I say so myself. I really thought like at any time I could risk getting amnesia. I still don't know anyone who's ever had it, but our brains are important. Obviously, this is where we keep our minds and our minds are where we keep ourselves. We are, I think we are our minds. I remember taking philosophy 101 and having like a mind blowing debate over this. Can I remember any other details? Of course not. But back to our minds and our brains, they are fragile They're housed in our fragile little human bodies, bodies that can just break unexpectedly. And that's where today's author found himself, the owner of a broken skull and a badly damaged brain. But you'd really never know it. Drew McGarry is a name you might recognize if you were a reader of Deadspin or if you are a current reader of Defector. I don't even like sports. That's not true. I do like watching some sports, but I'm not like a sports head, if that makes sense. But I always loved Drew's writing. He's the kind of guy who can make you laugh out loud on the page, or I guess in this case, the screen. And I've been reading and loving his Hater's Guide to the Williams-Sonoma Catalog for, I looked it up, a day decade now. So Drew is still all of those things. He's still a writer. But in 2018, he woke up in the hospital after a two-week coma. And there's no real explanation for why he was in a coma, for why what happened happened. One minute, he was standing in the hallway of a karaoke bar after a work event. And a few seconds later, a colleague saw Drew laying on the concrete floor in a pool of blood. And the EMTs assumed that he was just a drunk guy who had taken a bad fall, but his friends and colleagues insisted that he be brought to the hospital. And that trip to the hospital saved his life. So he hadn't just cracked his skull in three places. He had suffered a catastrophic brain hemorrhage. And the how of it, like I said, it remains a mystery. One doctor insists that the injury to Drew's skull is consistent with an assault, but surely somebody at a small work gathering would have seen that. His blood alcohol level was 0.0162, 0. 0.0162, so he wasn't drunk. What happened afterwards was months and years of processing what happened and what was lost, because it turns out that your brain is really important, not just for storing your memories or your personality, but you know, as the computer that makes your entire body work. Drew's book is called The Night the Lights Went Out, a memoir of life after brain damage. And it's a marvel not only that Drew lived to tell the tale, but that he retained his ability to tell it in a way that's, you know, not just scary, but also very touching and very, at times, funny, too. So here we go. This is my conversation with Drew McGarry. Also, a note that if you're listening with kids or if you don't just like swearing, this episode had a lot of swears in it. I'm going to start at, I think, a place that makes sense, which is like the beginning-ish or at least the beginning of this book. Tell our readers you know, who you are personally and professionally before the lights actually go out.
1: My name is Drew McGarry. I'm a writer. Uh, in 2018, I was a columnist at a site called Deadspin, and um, I was also a correspondent for GQ Magazine at the time. I had written a couple of books, but uh, for this particular story the fact that I worked at Deadspin was what was important because we had an award show, a fake award show that we did every year called the Deadspin Awards where we gave out awards like, oh, biggest asshole in sports media and stuff like that. And we made a real show out of it. We had Irving Plaza in New York. I hosted the show. I had a monologue. We gave out the awards. We had taped bits and all this stuff and it went really, really well. Hundreds and hundreds of people came to the show to say hi and to enjoy the show. And everyone got drunk and, I had a good time. And then we retired as a staff to an after party at a karaoke bar uh, that was a few blocks away. And I got there early. I had a slice of pizza. I had a couple of beers. And then at one point I had to take a piss. So I walk out of the room while everyone else is in it. And I woke up two weeks later in a hospital without realizing it. I had collapsed in that hallway. I had fractured my skull in three places. I had suffered a severe brain hemorrhage. Uh, which to this day, doctors do not know whether or not my fall caused the hemorrhage or vice versa. And the only reason that I'm still alive to talk to you is because one of my colleagues heard a thump out in the hallway, looked out, saw me on the ground, and then everyone came immediately to my aid uh, and called 911 because they knew I wasn't quite right. Even though like, I had woken up, I wasn't unconscious, but I was bleeding and I was not making any sense because I had Uh, a pool of blood inside my skull, which you're not supposed to have. And it was pushing my brain out of place. And you don't want a dislocated brain that kills you. And so they called the paramedics. The paramedics came. They thought I was drunk. Megan Greenwell and her husband, David Heller, who is uh, an internist at Mount Sinai, begged and pleaded with the paramedics to take a closer look at me and to take me to the hospital. Because the paramedics weren't going to take me to the hospital. They were just like, well, he's shit-faced like every other... Every other person in this bar.
0: Yeah, you're in a private karaoke room. I don't think it's an emergency, but I do think you're all idiots. And I'm sure they get like so many idiot calls all the time. Any other night, that might have been the case.
1: They took me to the hospital, and Megan Greenwald, while she was there, she was there with my colleagues, Samer Koloff and uh, Victor Jeffries. They begged with the doctors to to take a closer look at me because. I was just not normal as far as they had seen. And I wasn't, it wasn't because I had been drinking because they had seen me drunk many, many times and knew what drunk Drew looked like. And the staff was like, well, we, you know, we think it's something that he can probably just sleep off. And then they they did a CAT scan because Megan and her husband pleaded for it. And when they saw the CAT scan, everything went to a hundred. Like everything was like, oh shit, this guy is in deep, deep shit. And it turned out that I was in the wrong hospital for what I had. I had a hemorrhage. And a subdural hematoma in which one of the blood vessels lying the skull pops and the blood leaks into the brain. And they saw this on the CAT scan and it was growing. The more they grew, the greater risk I was of dying. Like, this is something that can kill you instantly. It killed Bob Saget instantly, not too long ago. Uh, so they quickly put me in another ambulance, took me to an uptown hospital uh, where a spinal surgeon named John Creedy, who usually worked on spines, but had also done occasional brain surgery on the side, cracked open my skull, sucked out the blood, put the piece of my skull back, and then I put me into a coma for two weeks. And then I woke up from that coma thinking it was the day after the award show and that I had gotten into a fight. I was like, ah, oh, I can't believe I got so drunk I got into a fight. And the nurse was like, no, you uh, you had a very, very serious injury. But of course, I was so drugged up from the coma. They give you like fentanyl and, you know, a, a cocktail. Of God knows what else to keep you under that. I didn't really understand what had happened. And I didn't understand it while I like I spent another three weeks in that hospital, just learning to like walk again and stuff like that. And I still didn't really get it. And it took years for me to figure out, you know, exactly what had happened to me and what it had done, because not only had I almost died. But when I woke up I was half deaf and didn't realize it. My skull fracture had torn through my inner ear on the right side of my head. I didn't have a sense of smell, which I didn't realize until like three months after I got out of the hospital, which is sort of an insult to the sense of smell. And I lost some of my sense of taste along with that sense of smell. I had vision problems too, which have since been corrected, but you know, there was one point where I'd lost control or sensory, you know, abilities in over half of my face. And I didn't really understand it. And I was angry. I didn't know why this had happened. And I was angry that it had, and I wanted to just reset it and I couldn't. And, you know, so the book is about my colleagues saving my life. But then the time after that, when I had to learn how to essentially become this new person that I was forced into being, and I was able to do that because of my doctors and because of my wife and because of my children and and the rest of my family. So, it's it's been it's been a journey to use a cliché, but uh, it's it definitely qualifies for that cliché.
0: It does. And there's also this sort of element of unsolved mystery to it because you wake up from this coma having no idea what happened. But also there is not a single person in your life who knows what happened.
1: That's correct. Even the doctors c- cannot sorted out and have not been able to sort it out. The doctor who operated on me said, I don't believe that this just happened spontaneously. Your brain just decided to explode one day. I think something happened. And by saying something happened, I think he was clearly insinuating that I had tripped on something, I had been assaulted, or something, something had acted upon me to cause this injury. But he doesn't know what that was. I don't have a good explanation as to why this happened. And the one thing that it's not annoying, it's more amusing, is that it seems like everybody but me who hears about it wants to know what happened. And really, if I if I had been a better writer, I, I would have been able to journalism my way into an answer and, and sort of made the book into a procedural. But I never got an answer. Uh, the karaoke bar no longer exists. And I wrote it during a pandemic when I couldn't go anywhere. I, I had to accept that life has mysteries that go unsolved and that that is okay. And in some ways it makes life better. You know, I don't want to use the J.J. Abrams mystery box as a, you know, as a sort of analogy here, but you have to accept that there are things that you're not going to know ever. And I think that that goes against a lot of you know, people's instincts because they want to know, or they want to at least pretend like they know shit. Like, cause I'm a dad. My job is to pretend I know stuff. And so I spend every dinner pulling, you know, factoids out of my ass.
0: And also it makes us feel safe. You know? Yeah. My husband had brain cancer and died. Sorry. And that. yeah, brains are wild. Even people who study brains are like, Oh yeah, I don't know. Ugh, that, nah, that's a tough one. <laughs> like there's just so much we don't know. There's this part of your book after you've you know learned how to walk again and you're trying to beg your wife to let you work again, and I'm going to read you some of your words to yourself. I highlighted this part. All my life, I'd been taught with great evidence and great wisdom that things happen for a reason and that you make good from bad, but I saw no good in almost dying. No one could even tell me why I had collapsed to begin with. All I saw was a miserable fluke. There was nothing to learn.
1: Yeah, that's how I felt for I don't know, a year, longer? Because it's like anybody else who has tragedy befall them, and the first thing they do is is they look up to the heavens. They say, you know, why me? Why did this happen to me? That's too random to be fair. Like you want, you know, you want some karmic balance in the universe. And when you're presented with evidence that it doesn't exist, well, it takes a while to to come to grips with that. It certainly took took me a while. And the other thing was that you know, the one of the reasons that I wanted to go back to work so quickly was because I wanted to pretend it never happened. And I thought I could, if I went back to work and I got back up on my feet, I could proceed as if it never had happened and that I was no different than I was before, but I was different. And it, it took my wife telling me that to my face many times for me to, to not only accept it, but then also to go get the therapy I clearly required to process, to, to think about it. It's like anything else. You have to you know, when, when your life changes abruptly, life still goes on and you sort of resent life for doing that, but you do adjust whether you like it or not. And in my case, the adjustment was not only, uh, existential, but it was also physiological. I got a lesson in, you know, sort of the miraculous way that the human brain, uh, works around problems you know, and adjust itself so that it can, it can work even when it has been damaged and even when parts of you have been badly damaged. I'm not going to say I'm glad it happened because I'm not. like I, I don't want my family to have to go through that because they all thought I was going to die. But I definitely would not have gained the appreciation that I had both for life and for my brain and for the people who love me had I not had this happen. And so I guess it did happen for a reason. Although for a good long time, it really sucked.
0: Yeah. And I think that's okay. You mentioned wanting to get back to work because then you could pretend that it hadn't happened. And I feel that there's this thing that happens in the aftermath of any big life-changing event, which is that you kind of go from being this fully formed person. You might know me from this or this to being like, oh my God, did you hear about Drew? Yeah, 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 yeah. That poor bastard, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. He almost died. I feel so bad for his wife. Yeah, no, they have four kids. Like, you know, it's really, really sad. And then all you are is sort of like this sad story that people are telling about you. And the other side of this coin, too, is that work is an identity for us. And also, so is our brain. And as a writer, you know, I think brains are important for every person, no matter what you do. Yeah, you are your brain. You are your brain. And yet also, like, for a writer, you're like, could I have broken a foot in this fall? I could do this with one arm if I had to. But, like, we really, really, we need our brains for so much, not just functionally, but creatively. Like, how do you start to write again?
1: That part was never a problem. Whatever damage I incurred in my temporal lobe and I saw it, like on a CAT scan, it's there. It did not affect how I write. The only thing that changed was I was not in the right frame of mind, and that showed up in the work. I never had a moment where I couldn't like put a sentence together. Like particularly after the drugs in the hospital wore off. And I'll tell you one one side note that didn't actually did not make the book. Miraculously my ability to write stayed blessedly intact and uh you know, whether or not, you know, people who don't enjoy my work are happy about that. I, I can't I can't say. But I will say that when I when I woke up, I had my phone on me. And I was like, oh, I gotta tell the world what happened to me. But I was like fucking zonked out of my brain on drugs. And I had encounters with nurses and with friends that I fully hallucinated. Like that did not happen. But I was under the impression that I had somehow that my brain had leaked blood into my throat and that I had gagged on my own blood or something like that. So I did a whole Twitter storm about what had happened. And, you know, my wife was on a crosstown bus that morning and her phone starts blowing up. And everyone was like, Drew's tweeting. You have to get his phone away from him. She's like, oh, my fucking God, because she had just left the hospital. So she turns around. She goes up to the <laughs> to me in the room. She's like, what are you doing? You shithead. And she takes the phone away from me and she doesn't give back until I leave the hospital.
0: My husband hallucinated that I was harvesting his organs and selling them. And I'm very glad he didn't put that on Twitter, but he was like, why would you do that? And I was like, "I what? What did I? Yeah. I was like,
1: huh? Well, the other thing is uh, that I had never, like I had never done acid or anything like that. So I had no real experience with the reality of hallucinations. And even now I have, no real clear demarcation in my memory of what was actually happening to me and what I thought was happening. I remember vividly an entire conversation I had with Megan Greenwell about whether I had screws in my head, like whether or not they put physical screws in my head. Cause like, it was like, okay, well, you know, well, I set off an, a metal detector every time I walked through it. After that, I told Megan about the conversation. She's like, Drew, we never had that conversation. And I was like, well, you're full of shit. Cause I completely remember it. She's like, Drew, it never happened ever, and that was just one example of it. Like I had remembered also, Megan bringing me food with Barry Pachewski, who also worked with me at uh, at Deadspin at the time. And I thought I ate all of it, and they said, "No, Drew, you ate one bite, and you wouldn't eat the rest." And then you asked for tea, and you, but you wouldn't like you wouldn't sit up to drink the tea you tried to drink it while lying flat on your back and then you got mad at everybody because you couldn't drink. I don't remember yeah. that part of it. So it's it's a little bit terrifying to know your brain has that kind of power over you when it malfunctions, but it's it's a learning
0: experience,
1: that's yeah. for sure.
0: Our brains are so amazing and they are also so fragile. The human body in general is just this series of miracles and also so so fragile. Like we are fragile fragile creatures it's frightening. If you think about it too much, it's very, very frightening.
1: Well, you have to live under the impression that you're strong, that you can withstand things, because life puts, throws a lot of shit at you, right? And you learn, you know, as you go through childhood and adolescence that you're stronger than you think, right? When you're two or three and you get, a, you get a boo-boo on your knee, you cry. And it's like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. By the time you're 16, you shrug it off. You don't give a fuck. But that sort of process you know that keeps going as you get older you feel like you have to toughen up to get by and while doing so you know you sort of put on the back burner notion that you are immensely vulnerable at all times like i'm not gonna get into a car and think every time about what automobile accident stats are like in the united states that's not gonna do me any good i would just freak the fuck out i wouldn't be able to drive my car right
0: you don't get on a plane and think like wow we are uh 30,000 miles uh, above the ground, that feels unsafe. You have to just sort of suspend reality to survive in the world. There's this part in the book where you are told that you have brain damage and you have to sort of square what you think a brain damaged person is with the fact that you are brain damaged. Can you tell me about that? My thoughts about
1: brain damage prior to the accident Really revolved around like what I had seen in TV and movies, or like sort of any links I had to people who had gotten what I would consider to be more serious brain damage. Like incapacitating brain damage. Like I thought of it as incapacitating or just completely makes you incapable of taking care of yourself and certainly of taking care of others. When I was presented with evidence of that on the CAT scan, I kind of thought of it in that way. And I also realized. There's no undoing that. Like those blotches on my CAT scan, you can't take some Windex and just wipe them away. They're there forever. And also they have the, you know, of course the, the terrifying prospect of growing. I am more vulnerable to having dementia or Alzheimer's now than I was prior to the accident. And I'm more vulnerable to it than other people with intact brains. And all that came at me in one doctor's visit. And also, that was the doctor's visit where I was told I was half deaf forever. So, it's one of those things where, you know, you take in all the information and you don't, like, drop to your knees and, like, scream or anything or, like, pound the floor. Like, I was just dead silent when I took it in. And it just takes forever to sort of process it and think about it and come to grips with it. And, you know, and decide what parts of it are worth ruminating over and which ones are not. So all of that has been part of my recovery. You know, we were focused when I woke up on my physical recovery, like that I had to get up and learn to arrange cones on a fucking shelf and write my name and do all that shit. But, you know, there was the the spiritual part of that, that, you know, doctors... They can only help so much, right? Like every case is different and, and they have other patients they have to treat. Them. And all of that is somewhat left to you. Obviously, it would help to see a therapist and I saw one far too late. But that is its own part of the process that takes much, much longer and is in some ways more vital uh, than the physical recovery. We'll be
0: right back. there's a lot that you lose even as you're sort of regaining some of your capabilities or some of your skills or some of your sense of self. And you mentioned your hearing, you mentioned your smell, you mentioned taste. What did you learn about sort of all of the things that the brain does for you? And also what kind of effect does that have on you and the way that you interact with the world and your family? I think like,
1: Losing my smell was bad because I had a lot of memories, you know, sort of tied to smell, you know, the smell of the ocean. Like, that's the one I still really miss. I, I'm pretty much over having lost my smell, but I, I do miss the smell of the ocean. Um, but, you know, there are other things like the smell of the hair of the girl I, I had a slow dance with, you know, the smell of my mom's uh, cookies, you know, or the smell of my wife making cookies or the smell of fall because I love fall so much. Like when you first smell the smoke coming out of chimney stacks, like all of those things like were really not only evocative, but they were like important to me. And so it was like, okay, well, how am I going to live without these things? Will my memories be as good? Will they be as vivid? And it's sort of, you start off in a position of fear. And once you live through it, you know, you have proof that your fears were kind of unwarranted because, you know, you you have more memories, more good things happen. Whether you like it or not, you learn to live as someone who can't smell. Taste was actually a lot more difficult because I write about food. I love food. Like, I loved food to the point where, like, I had to go to, like, overweight camp when I was a kid and stuff like that. And, like, and I became a foodie and, like, I loved Anthony Bourdain. And so I, like, you know, I, I liked being... Someone who liked really good food, right? And the fact that I couldn't smell that impact in my taste, but then also I got cochlear implant surgery in 2019 and was unaware because I didn't listen to the doctor when he told me this, that you can lose part of your sense of taste during that operation because the nerve that goes to your ear from your brain also goes down the side of your face and works with your, with your tongue. To, to process taste. And I had lost you know, a good amount of taste. And that really fucked with me, particularly in the beginning, because in right after my surgery, I couldn't taste a fucking thing. And it was like, okay, well I've been cursed by a sea witch. And if I never taste anything again, that's pretty much it for me. There's not, there's not gonna be much more pleasure in my life. if I can't taste anything. But then some of that taste came back, not all of it. And I kept waiting for the rest of it to come back. But what happened was at a certain point I let go of the waiting and when I did that my brain accommodated for it and the way things tasted to me with a damaged tongue began to taste fuller and I don't really know how to explain that without you know injuring your brain too like it's hard to explain smell loss to someone who can still smell because yeah. they like they can plug their nose but they know they can unplug their nose very very recently, I was able to like start eating it again and sort of accepting it on its own terms even though hadn't recovered any of some of the taste buds that have been damaged right so like cereal tastes the same to me as like as it did a year ago and yet my brain thinks about it a lot differently and so it tastes better and that is very complicated and annoying and I, it's a long-winded way of saying, I can enjoy cereal and ice cream again, even though I thought they had been lost to me because I changed, I reoriented my approach to how I think about them.
0: The parenting parts were especially touching because your kids have known these two really, really different versions of you. So can you tell me about the kind of dad you were before the accident, before the injury?
1: I don't think I was as good of a dad as I imagined myself to be. I got very worked up over things. I didn't have a very long fuse even before I got hurt. I have become so comfortable in my current skin that I don't think too much about how different I was before it. I used to think about that a lot, but I don't anymore. And also the other thing is that my wife, you know, tried her best uh, to shield the kids from what was happening to me. And that's very hard when you're in a coma and in a hospital But she really did try her best. And there were a couple of times where it broke through the kids. But, you know, even now, I don't think any of them quite understand how close I was to dying because they were not there for the initial sort of onslaught of both the news and everything that happened. You know, when when it first happened, my wife, she sent the kids to school that day. And she said, you know, dad had an accident. You know, he's at the hospital. He's trying to recover. And we have to go up and see him she stayed very general about that stuff because you know you try to explain that it's like he he's either not going to be able to process it or it's going to be so overwhelming and scary that he'll just freak the fuck out so she didn't want that to happen and so now i i have to sort of educate them about what happened to me without freaking them out too much because i know it's still something that you know they're still kids they still will ruminate on things you don't expect them to ruminate about
0: It doesn't surprise me that she sent your kids to school because you have this sort of tunnel vision into the one normal thing that you can control. And it's, you're going to go to school, and I'm going to try not to make you worry, and I'm going to go check out and see how horrible the reality is. But all you need to know is that dad's at a hospital, but it'll probably be okay. And it's just like you sort of reach for some sense of control In the uncontrollable. And you know, we talked earlier about losing hearing, losing your sense of smell, losing your sense of taste. And there are parts in the book where like you're really angry and your kids can sense that anger.
1: Yes, that's right. It took me a long time as an adult to understand what was going on in my mind. And you know, I'm a college graduate. I was in my 40s. Like I was someone who in theory, would have been able to grasp the stuff, but I had a hard time doing it. So imagine how hard it would be uh, for someone much, much younger, still going through their education and, uh, you know, their brains aren't fully formed and what happened to me did not happen to them. So all of that makes it much, much harder, you know, to explain and to process and and all of those things. So I think my wife did the right thing by keeping them on their routine is the way adults do when they're in grief, you know, that they will go back to work to distract themselves. You know, and so I think that that allowed us to elucidate what happened to me to them, you know, on a much more sort of staggered timeline where it's not as scary and it's easier to digest. And so far that's done well. And, you know, the other thing is that my youngest son himself almost died at 90 days old. And we've had to explain that to him a few times. And of course, he doesn't remember because he was a baby, but, you know, like, You realize that these sort of things are sort of lifelong processes, which, you know, can be daunting at first, like, oh my God, it's going to take my whole life. And then you sort of adjust and you understand that, you know, it's just sort of learning as you go and and that's okay.
0: I can't remember if I quoted this back to you the last time we spoke. So one moment. Trauma is a vine, a parasitic entity that latches onto a thriving host and over time grows on and around it. It can take a while, even years, to make its presence fully known. It doesn't surround you all at once. What was the timeline for this trauma making itself fully known? And do you think it's still making itself known? I think that
1: it has mostly made itself known because the fact of the matter is I don't really think about it anymore. I don't ruminate on it. Like It feels very much like something that's in my past which was my goal right away when i was in the hospital like oh i'm good i'm gonna leave this in the past it's never really happened et cetera, et cetera. and of course the irony was that i only prolonged my recovery time doing that and by sort of more analyzing what it did to my psyche and things like that you know that gave me the illumination i needed to be able to become comfortable with who i was and then move on from there but you know, like, it's true the the section that I, where I wrote about trauma, it takes time, it grows on you, it can be devastating. Uh, and especially in quiet moments, when no one else is around, and you're just alone with your own thoughts. But the upside of that is that the more it reveals itself to you, the more you sort of learn about it. And the more you kind of learn to live alongside it, uh, to the point where it does not dominate your thoughts where it once did.
0: Had you been to therapy before this?
1: No, I had not.
0: So what convinces you that therapy is going to be something that could be helpful?
1: It was because nothing else had worked. That's what it was. The timeline is a bit fudged in the book. So I did not go to therapy until the pandemic began. And between uh, the time I got hurt and the pandemic, Like I kept thinking that certain things would work, like going on meds would work and meds alone, even though I've been prescribed meds and therapy. I thought all the things I did to get my hearing back, including hearing aids and cochlear implant surgery, I thought those would make me better. I just thought there were a lot of physiological solutions I could get to that would put my brain right back where it was again. So I wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. And that was always, always wrong. And then during the pandemic, My wife bought a table, like a new dining room table. It was something that we had to go get from the person who made it. And so we had to rent a U-Haul. So we go to this U-Haul rental place and it's supposed to be ready for us, but I have to go into the office. And well, I go into the office. I'm I'm freaked out because it's very early in the pandemic. I don't want to go inside anywhere because I haven't been inside anywhere. Not even like a fucking grocery store. And like people aren't wearing their masks and stuff like that. And... Like I'm freaking out, and like I get back to the car, and I just lose it. I just lose my shit. I start yelling. I get mad at my wife for like, I I don't even know. Like you know, one of those things where like you're mad, but like you don't even know why you're mad.
0: My favorite kind of marital dispute, frankly. <laughs> right,
1: and my wife was like, "This can't keep going like this. You, this isn't working. You have to do something about this because this is. I'm not living with this." And that's when I was like, "Okay, if I've gotten so far gone." that my wife is telling me, you know, that I am intolerable. And I don't mean that in the sort of affectionate or fun way, but I mean, like truly intolerable. Then I have to do something about it. You know, I've been ignoring this therapy. Why the fuck not try it? And before that, I had tried to get therapy, but I was very specific. I, you know, I wanted one that my insurance would cover. And of course, no fucking place around here will have takes insurance. And I wanted one that treated my specific injury. Not everybody has a hemorrhage at you know, 42 that leaves them half-deaf in an instant. And when I decided really to get therapy in that moment after the incident, I said, you know what? No, I'm not going to worry about insurance. This is too important to nickel and die. I'm not going to worry about having the right you know, doctor. I'm just going to go find someone who can help me in the more general sense. And so I Googled it, and I found someone nearby was available. And that was it. And it worked. And my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. My wife, uh, amazingly, has been much more uh, sanguine about it. She said, you know, it was a process for you to get to that point. And I still feel as if I burdened her and my friends and my family with so much time of, you know, me being not right in the head. I feel like I could have fixed it so much sooner but you know perhaps she was right perhaps this is the only way it could go.
0: When you say not right in the head what was their experience of you in those years after the accident when you were just trying to move forward from it or take a medication or you know meditate for 5 minutes a day or do whatever sort of task you thought would help this really big thing.
1: I wasn't predictable I made everything about what had happened to me. If something bothered me, I would pull my wife aside for like a talk. Like, can we have a talk talk? Like, even though it was something stupid, like I didn't like how my daughter was loading the dishwasher or something like that. It wasn't necessarily the tone uh, that I took, even though I I had problems with anger, but it was just the relentlessness Mm. of it. It was just never ending. Just I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. And not being able to let things go when you really need to learn how to let things go, even if they're even if they're bothering you. Um, because you, you're not gonna be able to just keep doing the other things that you wanna do if you're stuck on these snags over and over and over again. So that's what it was like for them. I'm still a forty-five year old dad. They still have to deal with my bullshit, you know, now, but now it's it's become much more sort of generalized dad crap.
0: I mean, I imagine it's really hard, you know, for your wife, for your friends, for you even to understand like what's the injury and then what is your sort of reaction to it.
1: That was the problem, was that I didn't have a good way of communicating what had happened to me. It's hard to make anybody feel exactly what you're feeling when they can't, you know. You you can't magically make another person half deaf or rob them of their sense of smell permanently so that they have empathy. They have to Work hard to find that empathy. And you also have to work hard to understand that it's not going to be possible for them to have the closest possible empathy for your play mm-hmm. that they that they can possibly have. It's not going to happen unless you, you know, unless you smash them in the head with a baseball bat. No, it's not gonna do that to my family.
0: You're like, now, now you all get it. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would have been that would have been problematic.
0: Yeah there's the initial trauma, which is the physical thing that happened to you. There's the emotional aftermath and then all the additional physical losses you suffer. And then, and this is uniquely American and we have many listeners from around the world, there's the insurance of it all. There is just the cost. There's the cost. cost. And I would love to hear you Go off not only about the cost of this stuff, but also how you, a person with a brain injury, had to sort of navigate this labyrinthine. Oh, you don't have the right code. Oh, actually, this part is covered. This isn't. It all just feels, having been through this on the caregiver side for my husband, like a freaking shell game. You know, the first thing he said to me when he was admitted into the hospital for a brain tumor was, How will we pay for this? Yeah. That was
1: what I thought about when my son was in a NICU for a month, you know, when he was first born. You know, it's it's very hideous. It's 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 a gross burden to put on people to, you know, while they're at their worst moment in life, also have them worry about money and financial ruin. You know, I was very fortunate in that insurance paid for my son's NICU stay, it paid for my brain surgery, and it paid for my cochlear implant surgery when like the FDA approved my my specific implant. Only two weeks before I got the surgery. So the FDA bailed my ass out with the clock running down. But I still think about what would have happened to me had they not in- approved my implant surgery because I wouldn't have gotten it because $100,000, right? I don't know what my mental state would be like right now. And I think about many, 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 many people who were denied by insurance, if not for partial deafness, the way I had it, then for other things, including fucking cancer, like a lot of different things. You know, it was weird of me back at the time to be so frustrated that my, my family couldn't summon enough secondhand empathy or as much as I thought that they should have had. I had some sort of odd standard that I cannot define to you right now because I was not thinking clearly. But I think about, you know, people who are who are in my state of mind and weren't able to get out of it because they did not have the coverage that I had or the resources that I had to get out of it you know I, what if i had never gotten therapy you know because i had money to pay for the therapy out of pocket what if i hadn't ever done that where would i be right now and, and what about other people who you know I've, I've had really chronic back pain in the past what if i had an insurance to get surgery what you know how many people out there right now are in just astonishing amounts of chronic pain that they can't do anything about that makes them you know morose and even suicidal like you know what about them it's all around you. And it makes you think, you know, it, it's not fun to think about people going through all that, but it, it does happen.
0: You mentioned empathy. I think it's easy to forget when we're going through our own lives, which are immensely frustrating with or without a tragedy or a brain injury, to remember that every single person is carrying their own deep, hurt or frustration or things that we have no idea about and that access to the things that help people get better is still really 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 bad like it is still you were a 40 something year old man before you like ever sought out any kind of mental health care which is not unusual not unusual you know could you have probably benefited from it even before a brain injury i don't know yeah, I think, I think I could have. Absolutely.
1: It's fitness, right? There's physical fitness and there's mental fitness. And, you know, it, that's gotten co-opted into like ads for like the calm app and stuff like that. But it's, it's true. It exists. And I think that the stigma is wearing off, you know, like this isn't the 1950s. There is still people being terrified of like saying what's really bothering them. But, you know, it, that's easing off a bit. And it's, it really has been quite astounding to, discover how much better I feel when I admit that there was there was a problem with myself. You know, then that that's a good thing because it's it kind of sucks to admit you have a problem. Like, you know, because I had a problem with alcohol too. And it took me a long time after I quit drinking to say, yeah, I, I think I was an alcoholic. Mm. Like I think that's it that's a fair term.
0: Did you it. quit drinking after the brain injury?
1: No, no, no. I stopped drinking after the brain injury. And I still don't know whether or not alcohol played a role in my injury, although I suspect it did. And I don't mean drinking that night. I mean a lifetime Mm -hmm. of drinking. Like I drank a lot. Like I remember I told my wife, you know, back in the day, I used to like take swigs straight straight from the vodka bottle or the whiskey bottle when you weren't looking. She's like, really? I didn't think I was all that smooth about it. Like I thought she kind of knew, but she didn't. And so it made me realize how, frankly, easy it was to sort of hide how much I enjoyed heavy drinking and that I did do as much drinking as I did. But, you know, I didn't, I was worried about labeling myself or that I didn't, I didn't deserve the label. That was the weird one where it's like, was I alcoholic enough to be an alcoholic? Like I thought about it that way too.
0: There's more than one way to be an alcoholic and you can, uh, you can still be a successful writer with a drinking problem, as I'm sure history has shown us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was a very, I was a very functional alcoholic. Like I always was like, okay, I never drank in the morning. I was arrested for DUI in two thousand nine. I never drank and drove after that again. So that gave me the idea that okay, I I got control over this thing. I know when to not drink. But when I did drink, I drank a shitload. You know, anytime I drank it, it was cheat day. You know, after the first after the first beer went down, I could I could have all I liked after that.
0: You know, I know if you have a brain injury, you're advised to not drink, right? You're advised to not, you know, ingest a, a chemical that kills brain cells. And You would be
1: surprised. No, I had one doctor that my wife and my mother hated who said, never drink again. I had a neuropsych eval. And now that they said, don't drink for a year. And then I had another doctor who said, you can drink, but just, you know, moderate. And I knew I couldn't moderate. And I didn't want to moderate either, so I was like, "No, you know what? I won't. I won't drink at all." Because I think that drinking is so normalized, and not just like now, not just like in 2022 America. We're talking about something that's been around for thousands of years, just has existed alongside the human race, pretty much throughout its entire run. That I think even doctors who themselves drink are loath to cut you off entirely, because they know you're probably going to drink anyway.
0: It is a part of our social fabric, too. And if you work in media or if you work – it doesn't matter what you work in. What do people do after work, especially when you're young?
1: Yeah. And I worked in media, so we definitely drank after work.
0: Then it becomes part of, like, the Drew show, right? Like, oh, we're going to go out and Drew's going to be nuts or, like, Nora's going to be nuts. Like, don't worry.
1: That was my intent. The night I got hurt because it was an award show that we're having an after party. And I was like, I'm fucking cutting loose. Drew's fucking, Drew's out on the town, baby. I was very excited to be absolutely shit faced around everybody.
0: Did you do like a sobriety program or anything? Or did you just stop drinking? And was that a part of your therapy too?
1: No, I, it was not part of my therapy. I just stopped and I didn't do it again. And I said to myself, well, look, if I, if I can't get a handle on this and I, and I start drinking after this, Then I should go to AA, which I did do once after I was arrested by mandate. And I said to someone in the meeting that if I get arrested again, I will come back here for good because I know I don't have control over it. I was wrong because I should have gone back. I didn't. And perhaps, you know, people who are listening now are perhaps screaming at me to go back now. But I am at a point where I really, truly don't have any interest in drinking and i just don't want to do it and i don't care so i don't like i don't get the shakes when i walk by a fucking liquor store or anything like that we keep booze in the house i never touch it i don't care it's the one time where i have allowed myself confidence in my track record to say okay i i i'm never gonna do this again i thought at one point that i might bust it out for like special occasions like you know, like, oh, uh, I might have a shot of whiskey if, like, a friend dies or something like that. You know, treat myself, you know, we, you know, or, you know, have a bottle of champagne, if you know, when my wife and I have our 20th anniversary this
0: year, which is this year. But all of that has faded, too. So, Drew, you are, like, I have always loved your writing. I don't even like sports. Oh, I hate sports, you.
1: but I was like, oh, yeah. Read, I mean, yeah. thank you about the running part, not thank you for hitting
0: <laughs> sports. I would read Deadspin. I was like, oh, this is very funny. You're very, very funny. You are better. You seem like you're thriving. So, so far, so, so good, good, man. So far, so good. This book does not give you the answer to the medical mystery that is what happened to Drew's brain. But what did it give you?
1: I think it gave me a lot of closure because when I interviewed my friends and family and co-workers for the book, they told me things about what had happened and what had happened to them and how they felt that I did not know and had not known until I asked them. Because for a long time, I either didn't want to ask them because I didn't want to intrude on them with my bullshit, or I, you know, I was asking them mostly like, mostly stuff directly about like me presently, you know? Because I was selfish, and by sort of sitting back and talking to them on the phone as a journalist, when I when I interviewed them, I said, "Listen, when you answer my questions, try to pretend like you're not talking to me. Like pretend you're talking to a journalist." I know that's like, you know, that's obviously not easy to do because here I am, but you know, try to talk to me like you were talking to, you know, an investigator about it. And from that, they gave me a lot, of, you know, they gave me a lot of illumination that I hadn't had previously and so it filled out the entire story and in that sense ended it for me
0: I mean, when you're at the center of what happened which you are it happened to you it's so easy to get right. wrapped up in your part of the story but this is really yeah. something that happened to a lot of people
1: yeah I was asleep for all of it <laughs> so you know like they're the ones who had to deal with most of the bullshit oh I got to be passed out it's great
0: You can find Drew McGarry's book, The Night the Lights Went Out, a memoir of life after brain damage, wherever you find books. We'll link that in the show notes, and you can find his writing, including the Hater's Guide to the Williams-Sonoma Catalog, which will make you laugh out loud, at defector.com, and we will link that too. Nora Mcnerney, this has been terrible reading club. I am also an author. I don't know if I ever mentioned that. I am the writer of several funny books about sad things. You can find them wherever you find books or on my website, which is noraborealis.com. Our production team is Marcel Malikibu, Jordan Turgeon, Jacob Maldonado Medina and Megan Palmer. We are a production of American Public Media's APM Studios. The executives in charge are Alex Schaeffert, Joanne Griffith, and Lily Kim. Our executive producer is the wonderful Beth Perlman, and we love her so much. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and I recorded this in my sweet little closet.